0: Thank you for choosing OECD Podcast. Welcome to OECD Podcast. I'm Clara Young and I'm here with Professor Weil, who is Dean and Professor of the Heller School for Social Policy and Management at Brandeis University. Professor Weil was the Administrator of the Wage and Hour Division of the U.S. Department of Labor during the Obama Administration. He is also the author of The Fissured Workplace. Thank you for taking the time with us. Thank you. During the talk that you gave earlier at uh, the OECD, you were talking about the Fissured Workplace, which is the book that you published last year. The title being?
1: The title being really a description of what's happened in the employment relationship, not only in the United States, but in a lot of OECD countries. It's an analogy to geology, uh, in that, uh, you know, rocks that fissure that are once solid objects. When they begin to fissure those cracks both deepen and spread and i make the analogy with the employment relationship because the same thing has happened but it's happened in ways that people often don't even perceive
0: so for example um when you walk into a hilton hotel Mm-hmm. This is actually an example, surprisingly to me and probably to many people, that this was a place which is fissured. How would you describe that? How has that happened?
1: Well, it's happened. Um, let's talk about the hotel example because it's true for all the major brands. We walk in and we experience a Hilton or a Marriott or whatever the the company's product by design because they want everything you, your whole experience the person you talk to at the front desk, the room you have, the number of pillows on your bed, the way the uh, hotel is cleaned or serviced or the food, all to be part of the Hilton product. And that's because an important part of the fissured workplace structure is companies trying to focus on what are often called core competencies. So for the hotel industry, that's about providing a certain kind of quality service to a certain type of customer. And that's what people see and perceive. What they don't see is the fact that hotels have done something else at the same time, which is increasingly they've said, we don't want to actually be in the business of hiring people and operating those properties. We want those properties to have Hilton kinds of characteristics, but we will actually franchise the individual properties, and then we'll let those owners deal with, sort of the problem of employment. And that, in turn, gives rise to a whole bunch of other decisions. So typically what has happened is a set of owners, it can be private equity, it can sometimes be partnered business partnerships, um, purchase the property, pay the brand, whatever the hotel brand is, for access to that franchise operation. And then often they, who also doesn't want to employ a workforce. They'll hire a third-party management company to operate the property to the specifications of Hilton, which are required, and then often what that third-party management company does in terms is they'll contract out janitorial service to one group, Uh, they'll contract out the restaurant services to someone else, and even the cleaning of rooms is very often done by staffing agencies that are hired by the third-party management company. So the people who are cleaning your rooms, again, very much to the standards of the hotel brand, are very often several, several steps removed from the brand we associate with it
0: so the person for example who takes your luggage up to your room or the person who checks you into your room they are not necessarily employees directly of the hotel then
1: that's exactly right i mean in fact in the united states roughly only five percent probably less than five percent of hotel properties are actually managed and run by the people we associate the property with
0: right now What consequences, what ramifications does this have on the employee if you are a Hilton employee or you're an employee of uh, a janitorial uh, company or of something else? What's the difference?
1: So there are a few differences. Um, Those lower-level contractors, if you're working as a contractor rather than directly for the business we might associate it with, the chances are you're going to have – lower wages than you would have as a direct employee, Um, probably fewer benefits. Um, Increasingly, and we see this in certain fissured structures like in the retail industry, we see this uh, certainly in the agricultural industry, uh, transportation industry, actually many, many industries. There'll be multiple levels of contractors and subcontractors or franchisees. And, And in all those cases, the deeper the fissure, the more likely that worker is to have fewer benefits, less assurances of things that normally we've associated with employment. And of particular concern, and I know um, this is an area that OECD studies a lot now, the people at the bottom are classified as independent contractors. And as such, they often fall out of all kinds of social protections. So, protections around unemployment, protections for worker compensation if you're injured on the job, uh, even, uh, and this is very true in the United States, uh, sexual harassment. If you are considered an independent contractor and therefore on paper you have no employer, even though your day to day reality might very much be one that looks like employment, you have no recourse because there's no employer. And so that is, in a sense, it's an, it's the extreme implication of fissured work. But unfortunately, and I know this not just from my studies as an academic, but as the head of an enforcement agency where we spent our time trying to make sure people were paid the wages that they're entitled to, at the bottom of this we see this very commonly, and people are absolutely unprotected.
0: Now, so these are workers who have little or no social security net, they don't have basic employment labor uh, rights, um, and then there's the big problem of the wage differences. Right. There's been a lot of talk, there's been a lot of discussion about unemployment, or rather unemployment is low, for example, in the United States right, right now, but that wages have stagnated. Right. So perhaps the fissured workplace offers an explanation, an insight into this problem.
1: Absolutely. All of us who were trained in economics you know, always learned that at the height of a recovery like we are in, labor markets get very tight. And when you're seeing the kind of low levels of unemployment in the United States below 4%, historically, you would have seen wage growth that was significant, and we're not seeing it. And it is uh, precisely for the reason you're saying, or an important piece of it is, We have restructured employment in a way that does not have the same mechanisms that once ratcheted up wages in tight labor markets. Um, There are a number of reasons, including the fissuring of work, that have really decreased the bargaining leverage of working people in labor markets. And not just low-wage workers, even high-skill workers um, of different varieties are, are facing the same thing. They are no longer in stable employment relationships, very often while the work they're doing might be for a major company, they're one or two steps removed from that. And that means you don't have the same kinds of mechanisms that if you were an employee of an Apple or a Google or a a more traditional, a Walmart or whatever, your wages would have been pulled up because you were part of that company's wage system. When you are a fissured worker, whether it's through contracting or subcontracting or franchising, your work is being paid for as a price for service by that lead company. You're no longer part of their wage structure. And that leads to a reduction in wages, and it means you are, in a sense, uncoupled from that. And that means, you know, getting back to your question, our whole macroeconomic models about how wages should be carried up in a recovery period. Really look very different and have the patterns uh, you described
0: so whether consciously or unconsciously is a bit a divide and conquer by the big firms
1: it is and it's something I like to stress. I think it's more important to understand how the business structure and organizations have changed, and then we can make policy choices about what do we do in reaction to that. There's a lot of reasons why we won't go back to the former system of employment, and I don't mean to paint the former system as a golden age where everything was fine. But having said that, what we don't do, in my view, adequately with public policies is, is really call the question to businesses. If on one hand you are prescribing all of these practices of these different organizations that do a big part of your work, if you're telling a staffing agency exactly how many pillows you want, and setting the price for that service, and all a bunch of other standards that come with it, should you really be allowed to say, but they're not my employees, I have no responsibility if those, if those workers face ergonomic problems because of what they're being asked to do, or if they are experiencing wage theft, or if they're harassed on the job. I think we have to come back to the question and say, What are those responsibilities? How do we make sure that with these changes in business organizations, we come back to basic principles about what working people should expect and be protected by?
0: So in other words, if firms, and let's keep with an example of the hotel, if they are demanding that these Indirect employees or independent contractors adhere very closely to their standards of the hotel environment they want, then they should carry more responsibility for these indirect
1: contractors. Absolutely right. And I think one of the issues, and it comes back to the earlier thing we were talking about, our public policies and our public policy discussions often don't get to that because people don't perceive how much the whole wiring of business organizations have changed. So we, we're we not holding organizations accountable for these things because I think in, ma- in many ways it's hidden. People don't see how much these basic features of who is an employee, who is an employer has changed.
0: I think this is my last question. Uh- focus up until now has been, or until recently, has been on, okay, well, the problem is at the level of the temp agencies or the, right. the staffing agencies, and they're not paying the people enough, and they're not providing enough of, the, uh, of protection. And you said that, no, in fact, we should refocus on the lead firms and on the retailers. Right. Could you just go a little bit
1: more into that? And- sure, sure. No, I'd be happy to. I mean, I think there are really two kinds of things to think about one of the changes that we instituted during the obama administration in my own agency was to really rethink how we did enforcement and to say if we just focus at the place the contractor or subcontractor who has committed wage theft we might be able to recover some money for those workers but we haven't changed the system that will continue to generate that
0: when you say wage theft you mean paying a below-par wage.
1: Yeah so, okay. yeah, so by that I mean um, yeah, not paying the minimum wage, mm-hmm. uh, not compensating people for overtime hours. I mean, sadly, in the kinds of enforcement we did, we often found workers who were not paid at all for hours of work because of how the work uh, was structured. Um, so it's those violations that we see, and they're often because at the bottom of a fissured structure, that contractor might be paying a price that there is no way they could actually provide that service without violating the law and so it's not clear what you're going to do beyond directly helping those workers but you don't change the system that leads to that and that's why we did put our enforcement effort at higher levels through things like saying you're you know under our laws in the United States you could uh, in some instances, say, you're actually a joint employer. You can't walk away. These workers are so much under your control. Yes, this lower level is an employer too, but you're part of it. Or putting other kinds of mechanisms, other kinds of penalties, sometimes just connecting the dots of a corporate structure. We're all ways of moving enforcement up to a higher level under existing laws. But the other thing I really think we need to look at is more fundamentally to our laws themselves. We have so many laws, and I would argue not just in the States, but in many OECD countries, that presume a simple employee-employer relationship, that don't recognize this has changed. And because of that, that lead company might be doing exactly what it's lawful, but it's not consistent with many of the reasons we pass protective workplace legislation in the first place, or the way when we conceived of a system of worker representation through unions, they were framed in a time that's very different than now. So I think it's still looking towards the top or, or asking those lead businesses really just to balance the benefits they get from their core competency and keeping and shifting works to these other entities. Just saying, you have to put in that balance the conditions of those workers too and figuring out ways that they then go and do so
0: so that firms maybe uh, need to adapt the definition of exactly what are the responsibilities of a firm that have people working for them whether directly or indirectly that's
1: right absolutely okay. that might take lots of different forms that doesn't necessarily mean they have to reemploy those workers in fact there are a lot of reasons that probably won't happen but We're at the other end of the spectrum now. Now we're in a system where essentially those elite businesses can say, not our problem. I think we can do much better than that.
0: Thank you very much, Professor Weil. And uh, thank you for joining us at OECD Podcast.
1: Thank you.